0: Open your Bibles together to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. Everyone turning together. I think I can make this a brief message this morning. You can laugh out loud if you want to. Uh, I think I can. I think it could be a Mother's Day miracle, but I think I can. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. Let's talk a minute about the Christian life. There was a mom at home on the summer day with her son. Son's name was Jimmy. Woman's name was Nancy. Uh, Nancy was uh, in the house working when uh, the little boy came in with his fish. The, the fish had died. They knew that Mobert was pretty close to death anyway. He would kind of been floating up and down for several days, but Mobert was dead. Little boy, four years old, devastated. Mom had to stop it she was doing, take care of the little boy. Little boy said, Mama, we need to have a funeral. We need to bury the fish. So mother had to, of course, officiate a funeral for a fish. Uh, as it turned out, the little boy wanted to make a tombstone, so he got a piece of cardboard, like a, um, a shoebox top, and he got a marker, but he couldn't write. He couldn't write or spell anything, so that became mom's job. She said, Well, son, what do you want me to write on his tombstone? Little boy said, Well, put his name at the top, Mobert, Mobert. So mom wrote Mobert, M-O-B-E-R-T on shoebox lid it's gonna be the tombstone she said well what else what else would you like on Mobert's tombstone what else could we say about Mobert?" Oh, boy thought a minute and said why don't you write he was fun while he lasted <laughs> you know funny thing is that is exactly the words that we could use to describe a lot of people's Christian lives you know what I'm saying fun while it lasted but the point is, your life as a Christian was not supposed to be something that started big and fizzled. But the problem is, churches everywhere, not just our church, churches everywhere are filled with Christians who have sort of left the path. Christians who, either when they were teenagers or children, had some experience at an altar or at a camp with the Lord. They give some sort of testimony of salvation, but honestly, past that testimony of salvation, they have nothing else to share. Let's just save fun while it lasted. But what I want you to understand from God's word is that your Christian life is not supposed to be something that starts red hot and then fizzles and then somehow goes completely cold. And if that's the kind of life that you're living in Christ, I want you to understand that what you're living is not the normal Christian life. What you're calling a Christian life is not what Christ died to give you. And that's what we're going to see clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 13. You can stand, if you wish, out of reverence for God's word as we read together. A word for your life, a word for your heart, a word that tells you whose you are and what your life is to be about. Listen to what God is going to say to you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He'll judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you. Listen, you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the Empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Verse 21. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. If you've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a, a taste of the Lord's kindness. Take your seats. Turn back, look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18. Keep your Bible open. I was reading this week actually an article about the biggest rip-offs of our time. The biggest rip-offs. How many of you really like to get what you pay for? How many would you say, that? I really like a good deal. I like to know that I'm getting what, what I'm paying for. Well, apparently we're not always getting what we pay for, and there's a long list of the biggest rip-offs. You'll be kind of surprised what makes the list, though. Uh, one of the things on the list, all-you-can-eat buffets. How many of you like a good all-you-can-eat buffet? Okay. Rip-off, rip-off. Yeah. Why is it a rip-off? It's a rip-off because the average person pays for at least twice. You're paying for at least twice the food that you will ever eat. The restaurants know this. They appreciate that. And that's why they continue to run an all-you-can-eat buffet. They're making a killing off of that because you're never going to eat as much as you pay. It's a rip-off. But how many of you say, it's, it's worth it to me? Go ahead. Yeah, I know, I know you, I know you. Yeah, it's still worth it to you. Other things on the list? Text messages. Text messages. Now, I like to text. Most of us are texting these days. Texting is a humongous, humongous ripoff. Do you understand that the cell phone carrier, the, 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 the one that has your cell phone business, you understand that it costs them less than one-third of a penny? It cost them almost nothing to send our text messages back and forth. This is costing them nothing, less than one-third of a penny at the most. That means the markup. The markup for a text message is something like 6,500%. I didn't make that up. I worked hard to memorize that number. 6,500% markup. It's unbelievable, the biggest ripoff of our day and age. But how many say it's probably worth it? Yeah, probably worth it to some of us. Yeah, you're going to keep on texting. Yeah. The other thing on the list, movie popcorn. (laughs) Movie popcorn made the list. Are you surprised? Yeah. Do you know how much it costs to make a little bit of popcorn? About 10 cents an ounce. About 10 cents an ounce to make popcorn. At the movie, the markup is over 1,000%. Over 1,000% markup. But it's so good. It's just so good. How many say it's probably worth it to me? Movie popcorn? Yeah. If you had to give a kidney, you would probably still eat, still eat popcorn at the movie. Yeah. There are probably a lot of things in the world that we can say are humongous rip-offs. I would say there are lots of things for which we do not get what we pay for, but I want you to notice in Scripture what must be, honestly, the most amazing rip-off of all. It's in verse 18. Please don't miss it. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the Empty life you inherited. Let's stop right there. Your life was, say the word, empty. Your life was empty. Uh, our lives, worthless. You, you can use that word and understand pretty much what, what he's saying. It, it's emptiness. It's, it's worthlessness. It's, it's purposelessness. And these are all the words that would describe your life. There's nothing about your life that makes you worth anything or, or makes you full of anything, although some of us would think you're full of a lot. But I'm here to tell you, the scripture says it's emptiness. Emptiness describes our lives. Worthlessness describes us. And honestly, that's the truest thing that anybody could say for us. Our lives are empty. Our lives are worthless. But notice what happens. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. Notice where this text is leading. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now that's amazing. Our empty life, our worthless life, you and me, we we had no worth and yet God paid an ultimate price for our lives. Let that sink in. We're empty. Worthless, and yet God pays the ultimate price, not mere gold or silver. In other words, there's no way in human terms to put a value on what God paid for your life. No way in terms of dollars, gold, silver. There's no way because the price paid was the ultimate, the most precious, the most amazing thing of all. We're talking about God's own blood. Do you understand? God's blood was given to purchase my life and your life. This is the most amazing thing. How in the world could this be worth it to God? How could this not be the most colossal ripoff in the cosmos? God bought a whole world full of empty lives, worthless lives, and he paid the ultimate price. What was he thinking? What was he thinking? thinking. Here's the most amazing part of all. It must be worth it to him. What was he thinking? He's thinking he loves us. He's thinking he loves us. And he purchased your empty life, my empty life. He purchased our purposeless lives because he knew something. He knew that he could take your empty life and fill it up. Do you understand? He knew that he could take your purposeless life and give you purpose. He didn't pay the ultimate price because of what we were. He paid the ultimate price because of what he knew he could make us to be. Do you understand? It's not about what we are. It's about what he's making us to be. It's about what we are becoming. And this is the important part of the scripture. And it's the important part of the Christian life. But honestly, it's the part that a lot of people must have missed somehow. The Christian life is not about being able to point back to a time in your life when you prayed some prayer. There are no magic prayers. Salvation is not just a moment in your life and you write it down in your Bible and you get a baptism certificate and they take pictures at the church. And then for the rest of your life you can just call yourself a Christian. It is that, but it's more. It's so much more. It is a life of transformation. It is a life of Jesus somehow getting what he paid for with your life. It's about Jesus filling you up. It's about Jesus turning you into what you were always meant to be. Not empty, not worthless, but his child, his son, his daughter of ultimate worth to him. Three things I want you to pull out of the scripture, and these are the three things to remember as you try to give Jesus what he paid for in your life. First, back in verse 13, so think clearly, exercise self-control, look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Notice how Peter talks about salvation in future tense. Your salvation is still more or less in the future. It's very, very true to say that you are saved, to say that you have been saved. But it's very important for you to remember that in your life, very truly, all the best things are still yet to come. So what the scripture clearly says in verse 13 is that you are to fix your hope completely upon the salvation that Christ brings you. It's in the future. You're supposed to put your future completely in God's hands. How many of you sitting right here right now would say, I know that in my life the best is yet to come? Let me see your hands. The best is yet to come. Let me see your hands. I will stand here till I make a believer of every one of you. The best is yet to come for you. This is one of the ingredients to the Christian life. One of the keys, one of the things that you must wrestle for in your own life. It's called hope. And you must believe, you must understand that all of the best things in your life are still in your future. Or, well, Brother Tim, you don't understand. I'm 95 years old. I, I, don't, I don't have teeth. I don't have hair. I don't have feeling in my toes. There is no way that the best is yet to come for me. Do you want me to stand here all day? Because I will until you believe and understand that the best is always yet to come. Always yet to come. Because you're putting your hope in God's grace in grace, it's not just that grace saves us, it is grace out of which we live every moment of every day of our lives, it's God's grace. And it's His grace that lets me know that everything, everything that God has for me, the best is always yet to come. And I've had some good things, but I haven't seen anything yet, neither of you. But now this is difficult, it's difficult. That's why Peter says you gotta think clearly. Literally what he says is, you got to gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's what he says in Greek. What is a loin? And how do you gird it? Loins, in the biblical day, were the long robes. Everybody wore those long flowing robes. And when they had to go to work, you had to somehow get the robes out of your way. There there, there was no car heart back in these days, you understand? Everybody wore robes. But if you had to go to work, you would pull those robes up between your legs, you'd pull those robes up and then fasten a belt around them. They would fasten a girdle around the loins, around the robes, and that meant they were ready to get busy, ready to, to do some work. And Peter says, if you're ever going to get your Christian life down, if it's ever going to amount to anything, you're going to have to start by getting your brain ready to think. I thought that's what you'd say. you got to get your brain ready to think. It's going to be difficult thinking. you got to change the way you think, and especially changing the way you think about your future. It's not in your hands. It's in the Lord's hands. It's not up to you. It's up to him. He's already said that your future is going to be glorious. Your future going to be glorious. That means whatever you make on the ACT can't mess it up. Do you understand? It's in God's hands. He has said he's going to make something glorious of your life. So honestly, it's up to him. It's up to him. You fix your hope on him. Put your future in his hands. Number two, be holy in everything you do. Really? Seriously? Be holy in everything you do. Verse 14, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own, say the word, desires. Desires. God has already given me everything I need for holiness. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. Peter says right at the beginning of this book that the Holy Spirit has already made you holy. Already made you holy. Everything that you need to please God in every moment, every day of your life is already put inside of you. It's already made you holy. Your job now is simply to apply that holiness. Your job is to get yourself out of the way. And it has to do with old desires. Desires. Truly, God has given me everything I need to please him, everything I need for holiness. The problem is I got other stuff in me too. Peter calls them desires. Man, we become Christians, and we really do want to live for holiness. But all of us can say, if we're honest, we continue to have desires. I have desires in me that are not holy. I still have desires for things that are absolutely, positively sinful. I have desires to do things that I preach against. you understand that? I'm just telling you the truth about me because the truth about me is also true about you. The fact that Jesus has saved me and the fact that he's given me his Holy Spirit and actually made me holy, that does not mean that I don't still have desires to be very, very unholy. I do. God help me. I do. But understand what Peter says here. Literally in the Greek language that he writes with when he says, don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your desires. What he literally says is, don't let your life be shaped by those desires. In other words, you're not going to let those old desires determine who you become. I continue to have sinful desires every day of my life, but, but, but God help me, my aim is to make sure that those old desires do not determine who I become. I have old desires, you do too, old addictions, old sexual habits, old habits of speech and behavior, and those desires don't necessarily evaporate. What you must do, however, is not let those desires determine the person you're becoming. You can't let those desires determine the person you're going to be today. You can't let those desires shape you. You've got to let the spirit of holiness shape you. Be holy in everything you do. Be holy, God says, even as I am holy. One more thing, one more very strong commandment in this scripture. Verse 17, remember that the heavenly father, notice that he's called heavenly father. Remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him. He will judge you, so you must live in fear of him. I know that for some of us, that's a real struggle to understand. We've talked so much about grace, even in this worship service. We've talked so much about grace, and we're used to thinking that grace erases my guilt before God. And truly it does. But you've got to understand what the scripture says. You are still going to give an account to God. You're still going to have to answer to him. He pays attention to what you do, and he punishes, and he rewards according to what you do. That is not a contradiction of grace grace. That is not a contradiction of grace. He is your heavenly father. It's a relationship of tenderness. There, there's no way around that. Praise God for his love, his fatherly love toward us. But at the very same time, it's relationship of tenderness, but also awesomeness. He is still God. He is still God, and I am still predominantly a worthless life that he has declared worthy by his own blood. I am still nothing without him. And he plays no favorites, which is to say he's going to hold me accountable by the same standard he holds everybody else on earth accountable. I'm going to answer to him, and you are as well. He really does pay attention to your life. There really are rewards and there really are punishments in this life and in the life to come. You are a fool if you think that you can live any way you want and you're never going to have to answer to God. That is not a contradiction of grace. It is actually the way of grace. God disciplines us because he loves us. God continues to bring us back onto a particular path because that is the path where blessings are. And God is lovingly and fiercely devoted to his plan to bless you, to bless your life. He purchased your life, you know, paid the ultimate price for you and for me. 911 was called. There was a house fire family. Firemen rushed in. They gathered in the front yard, the mom and dad, the children. Suddenly they realized that there was a little boy who was still inside the house. The son was in an upstairs bedroom. There was one fireman who rushed back into that burning house. God bless him. He rushed into a burning house, brought that boy out, brought the boy out, saved his life. They stood there in the yard. The parents were so, so grateful, hugging the fireman, thanking the fireman. And finally the little boy said to the fireman, "said sir, thank you for saving my life. Thank you for saving my life. The fireman said an amazing thing. He said, son, I want you to know you're welcome. But I want to say to you one more thing. You just make sure that from now on your life's worth saving. Make your life worth saving. God paid the ultimate price to save you. The gift of salvation is free and awesome and absolutely beyond our earning. It's what God does for us out of his goodness, out of his love. But I'm telling you, it still behooves you and me after we receive this awesome gift of his salvation. Try to live a life worthy of it. Maybe live a life that Mike might say is worth saving. Pray with me. Jesus, we confess that we are nothing without you. But Lord, in you and by your grace and because of your blood, we are made to be your sons and daughters of infinite worth because you say so. Because we're worth that to you. And yours is the only opinion that counts. Truly, God, you're the maker, creator of everything. So you are the one who can say what's worth something in the world. And Lord, you have declared us worthy simply by your grace, not because of us, but because of what you can make of us. So Lord Jesus, let all of us put ourselves in your hands. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for paying the ultimate price for our lives, our worthless lives, Lord. You have made us worth something. So Lord Jesus, I pray that in our lives of obedience, in our lives of reverent fear, in our lives of hope. Lord, I pray that we can lay hold of everything, everything that you died to give us. Oh, Lord, we want you to bless us. We want everything you have for us. So, Lord Jesus, let us put ourselves out of the way. Let our lives be shaped by your Holy Spirit and the gift of salvation you purchased for us. Lord Jesus, you have saved us. Now make it, Lord, where we can live lives worth saving. We pray this in Jesus' holy, blessed, gracious name. Amen.